is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 01131, Gary Gisbrecht versus uh, Joanne Barnhart. Spectators are admonished, do not talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. Offer. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. We are asking this court to recognize a simple principle. When a federal statute requires that an attorney fee be contingent on success in litigation, that when a court determines an attorney fee pursuant to that statute, an attorney fee should reflect the contingent nature of the fee. Thus, because 406B requires a contingent fee in Social Security cases, when a district court determines a reasonable fee pursuant to 406B, that attorney fee must reflect the contingent nature of the fee. Um, let me ask you a question about the limits or the extent of the prohibition, whatever is in 406B. I think that can be read to deal only with the question whether where the attorney is seeking a, a recovery out of the plaintiff's recovery. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, it's possible to interpret the statute in a way that would not criminalize charging a claimant a non-contingent fee. However, the existing practice in the bar is to take it as prohibiting charging a non-contingent fee. Well, is, is there anything more authoritative than the existing practice of the bar that would lead to that conclusion? I would direct the Court's attention to uh, the uh, 406B2, where it sets forth the, the criminal uh, penalties for violation of the statute. There's... Um, there's only one appellate court to address whether or not a non-contingent fee <coughs> may be charged is the Third Circuit in Coop, where they didn't reach the issue. Also, one district court in Hutchinson, cited in the amicus brief from the National Organization of Claimant, Social Security Claimants Representatives, addresses that. But no, I think, but even if the statute did not require um, a contingent fee when there was no judgment favorable to the plaintiff, I believe that the vast majority of claimants would voluntarily choose to enter into contingent fee agreements. Because that's how they'd get counsel. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. And so even if the statute didn't criminalize charging a non-contingent fee, this would be the voluntary selection of the vast majority of well, us. If the statute, uh, 406B, uh, reads as though when there's a judgment favorable to the claimant, the court may allow a reasonable fee and, and could apparently determine that fee Anyway, it saw fit. I believe that uh, this court's uh, decision in uh, Christenberg garments is relevant. When a court that also that, stat, that case also addressed whether the the term of whether a court was, um, may award attorney fee, mm -hmm. interpreting that the court did um, if the attorney fee matter was addressed to the court, that a court would generally um, award the attorney fee in that fee shifting context. So yes, there are situations in which a district well it suggests perhaps that the court will allow a fee, but it seems open-ended that it will allow the court to determine the fee any way it wants, on the lodestar method or by, a, by some other method. Justice O'Connor, I believe the statute should be, should be interpreted relative to the legal context in which it was enacted. In 1965, the traditional role of state courts ruling on contingent fee agreements was to decide whether the agreed-upon amount between the parties was excessive or uh, excessive or abusive. But if that, that wasn't pursuant to any statutory mandate, was it? I mean, wasn't that the, just the general supervisory power of the courts over fees? Yes, the federal courts in the early 60s and 1965 doubted whether they even had the authority to rule on the appropriateness of a contingent fee. Congress clarified that by specifically providing 406B so a court, a district court would determine the reasonableness um, of a 406B fee. I believe that the Do you think the language of the statute requires a contingent fee? That the only reasonable fee can be a contingent fee? The, the, any attorney fee has to be contingent on success in the litigation. There could be different uh, fee agreements. For example, a uh, plaintiff may agree to to um, uh, charge or to pay his or her attorney a flat fee contingent on success in litigation or a specific hourly fee uh, contingent on success in, in the litigation or, for example, a complex formula based on um, uh, success in litigation. But the attorney fee, in our view — But you think that uh, the implication <coughs> of this statute is that the Court has to 
base it on the agreement of the attorney and the attorney's client? Yes, believe the relevant inquiry. Because it doesn't say that. No. I, I think you're reading something in that isn't there, and you're basing that on, on practice of lawyers at the time or something? Yes, but, yes, Justice O'Connor. Um, I believe that clearly in 1965 Congress could not have intended to adopt for this statute the Lodestar method, given that the Lodestar method had not been invented until a decade or so later and not really adopted by this Court until its decision in hence. Well, but the, before Lodestar, there, there were uh, other descriptions for a reasonable fee that depend on hours, uh, the degree of difficulty, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, lawyers did that for decades. Yes, and when, uh, yes, Justice Kennedy, and when a court was involved, the question would be whether the agreed-upon fee is reasonable or unreasonable. The court would not itself, in the, in the context when there was an existing fee and agree, fee agreement, determine what it felt was the most appropriate fee. So the, the, the primary question when there is a fee agreement and a fee request is whether the fee request, the agreed-upon fee, is reasonable. Well, I, I think this is a, a very difficult case because e either way we're going to be, um, depending on which circuits involved, we're going to be upsetting standard arrangements, contingent fees in some cases. Uh, but in, in, in this case, in the Ninth Circuit, um, are, are you saying that the fee this Ninth Circuit set was not reasonable? Yes, uh, Justice Kennedy. For several reasons, the attorney fee that the, ninth, that the district courts in the Ninth Circuit set was not reasonable. First and foremost, the uh, district courts did not address the primary question, whether the, the agreed-upon fee was a reasonable fee. Second, the <coughs> district courts who, who decided to order the fees in Gisbrick, Miller, and Sandine gave, uh, did not take into account, did not have the attorney fees reflect the contingent nature of the fee. The district courts awarded in all three cases non-contingent um, hourly rates, non-contingent fees, when by law the attorney fee must be contingent well, on success. Well, no, no, of course, that, that assumes that, that, that you're correct here. But, uh, but based on a, a, a standard of uh, fair compensation, was, was this unfair compensation? <coughs> yes. Quite without reference to, to your statutory argument? Yes, because when it, an attorney fee is contingent, on success in the litigation, the attorney fee should reflect the contingent nature of the fee. In this case, even if there were not a criminal prohibition on charging a non-contingent fee, the parties had freely um, contracted that the attorney would be paid more, taking into account the risk of let loss. But it, it seems to me you've got to get back to the statute and say why the statute uh, it should be read the way you want it to. This isn't an ordinary situation of a, of a contingent fee, say, in a personal injury case, which the court may have supervision over in a general sense. Here, it, 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 the court doesn't say that the attorney shall enter into an agreement and the court shall enforce it. It says the court may determine and allow as part of its judgment a reasonable fee for such representation. Now, yes. I, I think you've got to... Build from that uh, and say why you think that the uh, amount of the contingency specified in your contract is the one that the court has to follow. Mr. Chief Justice, I believe that the practice before uh, 1965 is relevant. Attorneys were entering into contingent fee agreements with their clients to represent for representation in civil actions. Congress, in, in, in enacting Force B, did not. Uh, did not void those agreements. Did not say that attorneys should not charge a contingent fee, but instead chose to regulate the contingent fee agreements. If Congress had, if Congress had uh, intended to prohibit attorneys from engaging, from uh, making contingent fee agreements with their um, clients, uh, force representation in federal court, Congress really could have said so. I think we've cited. But, but it doesn't say anything in B1A about contingent fees, does it? No. B1, uh, B1, uh, B1A reflects that the attorney fee must be contingent upon a favorable judgment. Well, it's a, if you get a favorable judgment, right. you, can, you can get a fee. Yes. yes which please. isn't quite the same thing. We believe that the uh, purpose of the statute expressed by Congress is fully implemented by our view. I, I, let me, I'm having trouble following your argument. And one reason is because I'm using the words differently than apparently you are. I understand we're in a universe where you're only going to get paid under this statute if you win. Am I right about that? Yes, Justice right. So right. we all assume in that sense every fee is contingent. 
Yes. Then I thought we were trying to distinguish within that universe between some circuits that say the way we should calculate that is by looking to what they call the load star, and other circuits that say the way we calculate it is we look to the agreement, and if the agreement's for 25 percent of the recovery, that's where we start. Am I right? Yes, Justice okay. Breyer. Now, what is it that we're trying to decide? Are we trying to decide whether — what is it you see us as trying to decide within that universe? Well, there are different — there are significant variations in the Lodestar method. The government now proposes that the Lodestar method be the Lodestar method from the fee-shifting context, not, not taking into account the contingent nature. It's, of the as far as I can see, the Ninth Circuit says we start with the Lodestar, but then it can be adjusted for 12 factors, number six of which is what I would call the contingent fee, namely the, the four, 125 percent of the judgment written into the contract, which is what I will use the word contingent to refer to. And, and so you have what the Ninth Circuit says, first the lodestar adjusted for that, and then some other circuits say, first start with 25 percent contingency, but adjust it if that isn't reasonable. Now, that, that's how I was seeing it. Now, am I right? Correct me if I'm not. Uh, Justice Breyer, I believe that there are variations in certain And there are some variations, and, but those are the two basic things. All right, as between those two basic things, what is it you want us to say? I would like to uh, re- ask the Court to, to specify that when a district court determines a reasonable fee under force to be, it should start by asking first the question, what is the agreed-upon amount, and is the agreed-upon amount Okay. Re- you said circuits that they start with the 25 percent contract and adjust, rather than the circuits that say start with the lodestar and adjust. Okay. And the statute says may. And now why should we do what you want rather than letting the Ninth Circuit free to do it the way it wants? Um, I believe, Justice Breyer, that there could be possible — you could allow different circuits to do things in different ways, but the interest is in uniform federal law. I believe that the um, method — the traditional method of determining contingent fee is best served um, — best serves the purpose of the Act. Hensley Lodestar calculation is generally an, um, an expensive, time-consuming um, endeavor, best suited to um, complex litigation. Social Security cases only take generally 30, 40, or 50 hours uh, to accomplish. If attorney fee litigation using um, trying to prove up the Hensley hourly rate is uh, required, then attorneys will have to spend five, maybe ten, in this case even much more, much more hours trying to collect a con- compensatory fee. Mr. Schneider, can I ask you this question? As I understand it, 406A um, provides that for representation before the agency, the agency shall prescribe a maximum fee. Is, 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 am I correct in that? Yes, Justice Scalia. So the agency sets a fee, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the parties have agreed to before the agency. They can agree to whatever they like, but the agency says this is the maximum fee. Why would Congress in B adopt a totally different regime for representation before the courts. Just to say, you know, before, before the agency, your, your, own, your agreement with your lawyer doesn't make any difference. But before the courts, basically what governs is your agreement with the lawyer. I, I don't know why they would do that. Justice Scalia, I believe that the statute does not say that the statute does not require the, um, the agency to ignore an agreement between a, um, a plaintiff or a claimant and his or her attorney when determining a fee for administrative work. In fact, if you take a look at the regulations, 20 Well, it, it, it requires them to ignore it if it goes beyond what the agency determines is the maximum amount that ought to be charged. Yes, Justice Scalia. In that, in that way, 406B and 406A are the same. To the extent that any agreement between an attorney and the Social Security claimant is inconsistent with the statutory provision, that that, that, um, that agreement is void. The, the, there's a longstanding but provision. What about the provision at the administrative level that does refer to an agreement? This is, what is it, A2, uh, an agreement Yes, it, it controls with a cap of $4,000 at the agency level. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. The, this, 
The statute there is elucidative of Congress' acknowledgement and also the agency's acknowledgement of the capacity of Social Security claimants to um, contract with their attorneys for representation in federal court. We are not asking specifically for the court to adopt the presumption, the conclusive presumption, um, in 406A2. Instead, we um, maintain that the attorney has the ability uh, has, the, has the burden uh, as the fee applicant to establish the reasonableness of the fee. That is somewhat different uh, than the more lenient rules of 406A2. May I, may I ask um, just a, a question of what this fee is composed of? S- say the claimant loses at all three levels of the administrator, uh, the administrative level, then wins in court. In the, <coughs> the hours before the agency count, and then would be, they be computed differently because the 406A? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, um, it depends on whether or not the claimant was represented during the administrative proceedings. If the uh, claimant was represented during the administrative proceedings, then the claimant's attorney can apply to the agency for compensation for those services after the district. After winning in court. So the district- they would be completely different. Yes, they're dual entitlement. The, the attorney can seek both 406B fees from the court for the court work and 406A fees from the agency for the agency work. Now, there's, a, there's another scheme, I think, that's more that's a bit clearer than this Social Security scheme, but in the for veterans' benefits purposes, you're probably familiar with the provision that provides for filing an agreement, and then it says uh, when there is such an agreement, the total fee payable to the attorney may not exceed 20 percent of the total amount of any past due benefits awarded, That's an express scheme for the filing of an agreement and agreement enforceable. Uh, Yes, Justice Ginsburg. I believe that Congress does, has addressed specifically and on, on occasion, when a court, when, a, when the court should look to an agreement, or the agency should look to the agreement to determine a reasonable fee. However, I believe that in the context of the uh, legal context in 1965, Congress would have understood that a, uh, that a district court determining a reasonable fee for representation in court um, for, uh, would look first to whether or not there was a contract between the attorney and the claimant, and whether or not the agreed upon amount was reasonable. That would be the method by which the judge would be expected to proceed. The judge would not be expected to determine independently a lodestar amount or to try to determine a reasonable fee. If the fee agreed to between the attorney and the client was reasonable, then that fee would be um, would be approved. So you're and saying I, this is a more uh, this came statute came later, but that essentially that they they operate the same way. Um, yes, but important differences. The 406A2 administrative fees uh, creates a presumption in favor of the reasonableness of the fee. But we are saying that the attorney has the burden under 406B to prove the reasonableness of the fee. We are not um, suggesting that there's any presumption that the fee requested or that 25 percent is a reasonable fee. The attorney has to prove that the reasonable fee um, is the agreed-upon fee. Of course, it's important in many cases the attorney uh, will not request the full agreed-upon fee, but oftentimes will request much less. For example, in the case of Anderson that this Court uh, uh, denied cert on, the fee request was not for the full amount of the contract, but for significantly less. I believe the attorneys have a uh, strong interest in not making Making, re- requesting inordinately large fees um, from the court because, one, it's, it would be improper, it's unreasonable. Two, the, um, the government would be likely to object. And three, a court would be unlikely to award it. And so attorneys generally are going to make fee requests to the court under 46B. They're going to be within the range of reasonableness. Is your principal objection to the lodestar method that you said that this becomes a litigation that is embarrassingly longer than the litigation over the I think I, itself? I, Justice Ginsburg, our objection to the lodestar method um, depends on how you, uh, what you mean by the lodestar method. There's a lodestar method um, used in the fee-shifting context that after dig is a non-contingent fee. There's also a lodestar method that may allow enhancement for contingency, and that would be out of the fee-shifting context. The district court here relied on uh, the uh, bar fees in the Portland area, didn't it, for lawyers who have been practicing a certain amount of time? Yes, um, Mr. Chief Justice. But the, uh, the hourly rates used were established for the non-contingent hourly rates. However, since the attorney's services were con- contingent on success, um, an attorney fee awarded at that rate would not be fully compensatory. That when an attorney fee is contingent on success, 
the attorney fee, a reasonable attorney fee, should reflect the contingent nature well, of the Well, every fee is, in a sense, contingent on success. I mean, if you lose the lawsuit, you don't charge the same amount as you if you win the lawsuit, whether or not the fee agreement is contingent. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. In this case, the government maintained that $125 for one attorney was the appropriate, reasonable, non-contingent hourly rate. However, the government also concedes that the class-based risk of loss in these cases is two out of three. We've set forth agencies' own statistics showing that um, one-third of Social Security plaintiffs end up receiving past due benefits. And so, on average, an attorney will receive one-third of that non-contingent hourly rate if that non-contingent hourly rate is all the compensation that the attorney can obtain. Mr. Schnaufer, here's my problem with, 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 with your basic argument, which is, look, at the parties have negotiated a fee in another context. The negotiated fee is what the, what the Court begins with. This is not other contexts. They're all of all three of the of the contracts involved in this case provided for a fee of 25 percent of the back benefits, right? Yes, Justice Scalia. And there is testimony in this case that that is the universal practice, the universal practice of all the lawyers that represent these kind of uh, these kinds of clients. Yes, Justice Scalia. And that that 25 percent of back benefits is the maximum allowed by law. Yes, Justice Scalia. Now, what, what reason is there to believe that this is a, you know, an honest evaluation by the two parties of what the, of what the lawyer's services are worth? The lawyers are simply going for the absolute maximum that the laws allow. I, I don't know why we should pro- approach this as a, you know, or, or why Congress would have approached it as cases in which, well, you know, after all, the parties struck a deal at the beginning at arm's length, and, and that should be the, the starting point. This is not that kind of a situation. It is not an arm's length situation. It is a, a closed market in which uh, these, uh, 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 these plaintiffs uh, take what, what the bar gives them. That's about it. Justice Scalia believed that if the statute specified a 5 percent maximum fee or a 10 percent maximum fee, the attorneys would also generally charge, almost universally charge, that same 5 or 10 percent. It's important to take a look at the 25 percent cap on um, past due benefits in relative context. This is 25 percent of past due benefits. It's not 25 percent of the whole value of the case. In normal um, civil litigation, an attorney recovers not 25 percent of a small part of the judgment, but the lifetime of benefits. Sometimes it will be a long- larger part of the benefit. It depends entirely on how long the case goes on. It's entirely fluky. And in all of the cases, the lawyers come in and say, 25 percent, that's the max I can get, and that's what I'm going to ask for. I think that, Justice Scalia, I think in this case, it's useful to take a look at an example and see what that 25 percent cap actually does. The government in this case maintained that the non-contingent hourly rate was $125 for an attorney. Also, the government does not dispute that the risk of loss is one in three. And so a fully compensatory um, hourly rate would multiply that hourly rate times a three multiplier for $375 an hour. However, in these cases, the actual, the 25% cap came in and would have been met at $280, $190, and roughly $270. Well, but your, your multiplication assumes a, a fictitious market. If, if I'm an attorney and I'm practicing in this area and I know I'm going to win only one out of every three cases, uh, I'm going to tell the judge my hourly rate in order to make a decent living in this part of this uh, law and this specialty is X dollars an hour, $150 an hour. I have to get that. And I take it the trial judge would say, yeah, that's right, $150 an hour is the prevailing rate. That's what you get. Justice Kennedy, I believe if the, the hour you, — you, you, you made the assumption um, of, of, a mar- of, of a fictitious mark. Um, Justice Kennedy, I believe that the government concedes that there's a one-in-three loss in a typical Title II case. Therefore, and also the government's position was that the appropriate non-contingent win-lose-or-draw hourly rate was $125 for one of these attorneys. Therefore, under the government scheme, paying $125 an hour to an attorney for services will only will mean that the attorney grosses only $44. It's roughly, roughly a third of that amount. And so the way the, the, way the government's counting um, it, it establishing the hourly rate at $125, 
admitting to the class-based risk of losses, one in three, we're not contesting that, you can see that the attorney's recovery is actually much lower than that non-contingent hourly rate, given Well, it will, it will be you, much lower. You know, let me ask you a question I've been trying to get in for a while here. What would, you, what would your reaction be to a rule which said the district judges shall require the applicant for a fee to, one, file any contract he has, two, file a statement of his hours, three, file his normal uh, rate that he normally charges, and based on the district judge's knowledge of the proceedings, he shall set a reasonable fee. Justice Stevens, I believe that that would accomplish the goal um, readily. A local uh, district court could adopt such a rule, which would be consistent with 406B. I think that the court should also at the same time consider um, whether or not there is any offsetting award under the Equal Access Justice Act, also um, whether or not there is any um, fee, fee li- filed liability under 406A. The district court here expressed, or perhaps it was the magistrate judge, expressed some skepticism as to the number of hours, I think, put on in one of these cases. Um, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I believe that the district court judge would, um, disputed whether there was any special expertise involved. Um, the government did not contest that all the hours in these cases were reasonably spent, the 25 hours, the 39, and the 52 hours. Well, the fact that government didn't contest it doesn't mean that we perhaps shouldn't pay some attention to the view of the district judge. Uh, the, district, the district court judge did award the number of hours requested. The district court judge did not reduce the hours um, at all in terms, in, in terms of the hours. Um, like to take why, the why should we consider the uh, uh, separate fee under the uh, Equal Access to Justice Act? A reasonable fee is a reasonable fee. Why, why does it matter that some money may be forthcoming from a, from a different source to pay part of that fee? At, at the, the statute cons- concerns how much the client will actually end up paying her, his or her attorneys, that the Equal Access Justice Act — And it says that they should pay a reasonable amount. Uh, the, yes, they pay a reasonable amount. And that is — and, for example, the out-of-pocket <coughs> attorney fees, in this case, with the EJA offset, was 296.75 for all three uh, uh, claimants who, who received $114,000 in back benefits. And so um, — and. It, in that context, I believe that the attorney fees, uh, um, the, the judge should consider the Equal Access to Justice Act because how much the claimant pays is uh, very important. How does it work under the fee shifting? You're saying in that view that the Equal Access to Justice fee is for the benefit of the lawyer rather than the client. Yeah. The EJA the itself, the offset provision, states that the attorney should keep the larger of the 406B and the EJA fee. Um, so the statute itself contemplates that the attorney is entitled to the larger fee. In the, in the context of a fee-shifting statute where EJA applies, uh, the, lawyer, the, the lawyer gets the fees from the defendant under EJA. Can the lawyer have a, an agreement with the client that the client is going to pay an override above above what the lawyer gets from the defendant? Yes, we rely quite heavily, uh, Justice Ginsburg, on this Court's decision in Venegas versus Mitchell, recognizing that an, att- an attorney fee paid by a client to his or her own attorney um, can be in addition to the amount of a fee-shifting statute. You know, fee-shifting statutes such as the EJIT will not provide a fully compensatory fee in almost all cases. This is particularly true since the EJIT's um, hourly rate has an artificial cap. It is not the prevailing market rate um, um, based upon the attorney's services in the local community. If I may, I take the... Very well, Mr. Schnaufer. Uh, Mr. Sammons, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, for three reasons, courts should use the Lodestar method to determine and award a reasonable attorney's fee under the Social Security Act. First, the Lodestar method best reflects the plain language and purposes of Section 406B. Second, it is consistent with the strong presumption in favor of the lodestar approach announced in this court's attorney's fees cases and third it best furthers the statute's directive that the fees awarded in each case must be reasonable does the lodestar method take it take into account the contingent nature of the recovery uh your honor the the lodestar method um, permits district courts to take a number of factors into account in determining uh, the reasonable hourly rate and the reasonable fee under this Court's decision in Dague, however, uh, it, it, courts are not permitted to I- increase what would otherwise be a reasonable fee based on the mere fact that it was contingent. Well, would it be a reasonable fee if it included in the hourly rate reference to the fact that there's only a one-third success rate? I said, Judge, I want to practice in this area. I know the area very well. I win only a third of the time. Therefore, my hourly rate 
takes into account the fact that I'm going to win only a third of the time and my hourly rate is $200. Can the district judge accept that? Uh, no, Your Honor. I think under Dague that would not be permissible. This Court in Dague — And that's a false market that the, that the, uh, that the district judge is, is, is using in order to uh, award the fee. I, I don't understand that. Your Honor — And, and uh, uh, of course, I see the consistency of your position, because if you said yes, then I'd say, well, doesn't the contingency fee do the same thing? So I, I — I'm concerned about how the district judge can award, in effect, just $40 an hour. Your Honor, I, I think there are uh, at least three responses to that. First, um, this Court in Dague rejected the notion that contingency enhancements were necessary in order to uh, determine a reasonable fee in the context of fee-shifting statutes. And what, uh, in that case, what statute were we interpreting? Uh, that involves Section 1988, Your Honor. Yeah, not this one. That's correct. Not, not uh, cases like this where there is uh, a low success rate and where the language of the statute says a reasonable fee. Uh, Your Honor, I, I mean, why isn't the Court uh, — why can't the Court determine it? as it wishes, so long as it finds at the end of the day it's reasonable. Your Honor, we think — Hourly rate that it it enhances somewhat for the risk factor, or even a contingent fee could be reasonable as long as it doesn't exceed 25 percent. Doesn't this statutory language leave that open? Your Honor, I think that the statutory language is open to to this Court and and, and to courts generally to to construe a standard that best furthers the purposes of the Act, uh, this Court has long you held — the statute requires that one particular method be selected, or does it leave it up to the judge? Uh, Your Honor, it, it certainly leaves it up to courts. Um, that's true in fee-shifting statutes as well as with this statute. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that fee-shifting fee statutes are necessarily an appropriate analogy here, because perhaps there's no reason for requiring a defendant to pay a lot of money because the arrangement between the plaintiff and his attorney was was contingent, and the the attorney doesn't win many cases. But I think if you're talking about an agreement between the plaintiff and the client in the actual case, uh, there may be more of a case for it. Your Honor, I, I think actually uh, to the contrary. In the context of fee-shifting statutes, this Court has long recognized that the purpose of those statutes is merely to encourage lawyers to undertake litigation. And, and, and nevertheless, this Court has said that a contingent enhancement is not necessary to provide that extra inducement, that a lodestar calculation is adequate and appropriate in, in striking the balance that Congress intended when Congress only intends to encourage litigation. In this context, by contrast, Section 406B is not merely a statute designed to encourage litig- litigation, but is designed to protect uh, Social Security claimants and their awards of back benefits. I can't understand your position that a reasonable fee must, can be, must be determined without regards to the realities of the specialty practice. I, I just don't understand that. Your Honor, that, it, that is certainly not our position. It is not our position that courts must be blind to the realities of this practice. Is one our of those position- realities that you can prevail only a third of the time? Well, those, those numbers obviously vary. Lawyers in this context let's, aren't let's prevailing assume, all the let's time. Let's assume that that is a given in the particular community and in the particular practice. Yes, Your Honor. I think that one thing that's important to keep in mind is that Congress struck the balance in this statute between protecting claimants and encouraging lawyers. And in, what it, in the case that I put, can the judge or cannot the judge take into account the fact that the attorney is going to win only a third of the time? This is his only practice. This is all he does. He's a specialist. Your Honor, if what you mean by take into account that lawyers in, that, that the, the court can increase rate. the hourly rate in order to provide a subsidy from prevailing Social Security claimants to losing Social Security claimants, I think that would be inappropriate under this statute and under this Court's decisions in Dague, which, which although it is a different context, I think the differences cut strongly in favor of it's applying not a subsidy, the same rule what's here. A subsidy? I mean, the obvious, everybody has the same point. If you say they can only earn $40 an hour, the Social Security people won't be represented. Or they'll pad their hours. Now, I, I, I can't believe Congress wanted that. So, so there doesn't seem to be an answer to that, and Congress used the word may. So may means may. I mean, that's the simple argument. That, that is correct, Your Honor. It sounds to me so may, far as may there is no may. answer. And, and, and the, 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 the point I was making is that, that it certainly is available to this Court 
to, to set a standard for courts to apply. If it's available, why wouldn't we do? Why wouldn't and, we And that's do what it? I was trying to address, Your Honor. Okay, I think good. the reasons why this Court should not adopt a rule that would require uh, the, the shifting of benefits, in effect, from successful Social Security No, I, that's what I asked. What, why is, what do you mean a shifting of benefits? It's not a shi- A subsidy is where you take some money and you pay for somebody to do something. I don't see why you call this a subsidy. That's a conclusion. But well, the it, it is they're charging what it costs them to provide service to Smith. And it is what it costs, because in the absence of this, sir, Smith won't get the service. Uh, nor, nor will Jones and Brown, who happen to lose, but particularly Smith won't. But, it, but Your Honor, that's not necessarily true. I mean, the, the individual cases, the riskiness of individual cases is going to vary widely. Smith, that's is, one paying, of the Smith is paying for, the, for the, the work done for the two guys who lost. That's, that's exactly right. And that's what this Court, that's the way this Court one addressed the question. Well, that's the way this Court addressed it. All right. Now, why should we look at it that way? And I think that that same analysis. Why should we look at it that way, since Smith is also paying for what it costs to serve Smith? Your Honor, I think that the the reason this Court should view uh, contingency enhancements in this context is inappropriate is is, is because of the purpose of the statute, primarily designed to protect the benefits of successful Social Security claims. But the statute itself speaks, sets a cap a contingent fee of no more than 25 percent. I mean, the statute itself refers to that as a cap. The statute has — that's correct, Your Honor, and the statute has two provisions. Um, one is that it sets an upper bound uh, of a reasonable fee, which is 25 percent, but, but more precisely — That does not suggest that there can never be a contingency factor, does it? It does not necessarily suggest that, no. What, what we are talking what, — what, what I think the question as, as uh, 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 Justice Breyer posed was, was more on a policy level. What, why should this Court adopt a rule that would allow those kinds of enhancements? And I think one of the reasons why that's inappropriate in this context is because the purpose here is not just to encourage lawyers to take these cases, which was the case in the fee-shifting statutes where this Court said enhancements aren't necessary. The purpose here is to protect claimants, and it would be particularly well, Is the purpose to give fair compensation to members of the bar? That is, that is a purpose, but I would submit, Your Honor, that of, in, in, in regards to the language we're focusing on of the reasonable fee, that is not the primary purpose. There is a separate provision in 406B where Congress to address the question of, of the problem of encouraging lawyers to take these lawsuits. Suppose, Suppose you had a good friend and he said, I'm going to go into um, Social Security uh, work. I, I, uh, I know the area very well. It's going to be my specialty. I'm going to win a third of the time. I'm going to, in effect, get $40 an hour. Would you advise him to go into that part of the practice? Your Honor, that would probably depend on what some of his other alternatives were. I don't mean that in any sort of derogatory way. But it is not the case that lawyers cannot make a, a sufficient wage under the Lodestar method. It's important to remember okay. that and there are at least six circuits who have been applying the Lodestar and, method. And is there, is the re- what you, in a way, what you mean by the Lodestar method, I know we've talked about it in a lot of cases, but would it be a satisfactory compliance with the Lodestar method, in your view of the case, if every judge said to every lawyer, file your timesheet with me, I want to know your hours, I want to know your regular charge, and I want to see the contract you've got, and I know a lot about the case, I'll fix the fee. Would that satisfy your view? Your Honor, that, that would certainly be a, a one way to interpret the statute, and I think on the text of the statute, there's nothing that would prohibit it. I think there are strong reasons why this Court may want to provide some guidance to so guidance that more of a uniform federal, federal you rule. You should take into account the hours, the general charge that he makes, and his success in the case, and whatever contract he's made. And then you know the case, you decide the reasonable fee. But, and, and we don't want to have a 10-month argument under Lodestar method about what the, you know, we, we, one of the things we want to avoid is protracted litigation in these cases. So we want to simplify it. I think, I think you would agree that's desirable. I, I do agree that's desirable, and I think the Lodestar method is the best way to do that. And I'm just wondering that. if what I propose would be a sufficient compliance with the Lodestar method to satisfy the government. Your Honor, I think it, it, it would largely be in compliance with the Lodestar method, although not under this Court's decision in Dague, which has prohibited uh, the consideration of contingency enhancements. Did, did, that, did that prohibition of contingency enhancements apply in a context such as this, where it was only legally possible to charge when you win? Uh, no, Your Honor, that was not the context of Section 1988. That not, may, might that not make a difference? It's one thing to say, you know, well, if you know, if you don't charge anything for your losing cases, that's your problem. You ought to charge, uh, and and we're 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 not going to allow you to conduct that practice and make uh, make this 
uh, plaintiff pay for the, uh, for the two who you lost. But where you're in a different context, where the only time you can get fees by law is where you win, would, would we have to pay, would, would we have to adopt the same rule? Um, Your Honor, I think this Court should adopt the same rule, and it's because the, the, the reasons this Court adopted the rule that it did in the context of fee-shifting statutes was not because there was still some possibility that lawyers could negotiate fees even that weren't on a contingent basis. Yeah, the well, reasons- what is, what's the government's position? Uh, supposing uh, one of these Social Security lawyers has a very wealthy client who feels he's entitled to Social Security, as of course he is just like everybody else, he hasn't been paid it, and says to the lawyer, I- I'll pay you $300 an hour. If uh, for all the work you put on this case, because I am determined to get that Social Security. Do you think 406B prohibits that? Um, he, he doesn't want to get it out of the judgment at all. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll bill you for it afterwards. Your Honor, the, the, the Commissioner does uh, interpret 406B to require only contingent fees, that, that, that it prohibits uh, a lawyer from charging fees when there's no uh, award of back pay. The maximum wouldn't make any sense otherwise. I mean, you, the, the maximum is, is 25 percent of the back pay award. Well, there's, we there's that, no back pay award. You can charge as much as you like. I mean, that's um, that's strange. Um, we we think that in light of uh, of the, the the terms of 406B, its purposes, and the structure with with uh, the, the provision that would make it in fact a crime to charge more, that the best way to read that is, is to require that that only fees that have been authorized by a court can be charged. Has, that, the, com- that, has the commissioner ever issued an opinion to that effect? No, Your Honor. There's no regulations that specifically address that. To be honest with you, it is not an issue that really has come up because lawyers, as again the record here reflects, have a universal practice of entering into fee agreements that say 25 percent contingency at the statutory maximum and their contingent fees. So it's just not an issue that comes up. Well, the statute and it says all fees are contingent, and the government says there can be no contingent fees. That's where we are in this case. You're, you're, no, no, Your Honor. The statute says the, the relevant language of the statute says that courts uh, will determine a reasonable fee, and we think but that all fees are contingent on success. In other words, th- there's some um, confusion, I think, of what the term contingent fee means. Nobody gets a fee if they lose. At least the secretary has interpreted the statute as long as I know to say that the only time that the lawyer is going to recover is if the plaintiff gets benefits. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. And then the question is what's, what this provision requires. And one just reaction that I had to this picture is, well, in tort litigation, the standard is a third of the recovery. And why isn't here, why isn't a quarter of the recovery eminently reasonable, considering as was pointed out that the recovery comes only out of the past benefits, no, nothing out of the future benefits that the person's going to get. So what is it about the 25 percent of past benefits? It doesn't just make a whole lot of sense. Instead of engaging in what we know from this very case will take as much time as the calculation as the dispute over the benefits themselves. This, the litigation here over the fees took as long as the litigation over the claimant's right to benefits. Your Honor, let me, let me, if I may, address your last point first, and that is to say that the, the Commissioner's experience with the Lodestar method in the numerous circuits that apply it is, is not that it is difficult to apply. But keep in mind, Your Honor, that in most of these cases, the lawyers are also seeking EJA fees. And so the, the very same court that's going to consider their 406B fee claim has already undertaken a lodestar analysis to determine a reasonable number of hours, and, and then the rate is, is determined by, by EJA. But, but the commissioner's experience is that the, the lodestar method is not difficult to apply, and in the vast majority of cases, certainly in, in, in most circuits, the commissioner doesn't object to most of the fee claims because they are reasonable. The, the courts have determined standards for what reasonable rates are in the relevant prevailing markets. You mentioned EJA, and one of the problems that I have with that analogy is it works out here that you get EJA is just about it. These three lawyers got what um, what EJA permitted. In, in the fee-sifting statutes generally, you get from the defendant the, what EJA allows you, but then you can have, you can recover more from your own client. Here it works out that EJA is it, and there seems to be 
something unfair about that. Your Honor, I think the only thing unfair uh, in that sense is that Congress here has determined that the, the market for legal services in the Social Security context was failing to carry out the purposes of the Social Security Act and that lawyers had unequal bargaining power and were char- in charging inordinately large contingencies. But those were the days we were talking about 50 percent contingencies. So Congress cut it back to 25. So why? That's why, correct. And if you, you just said, well, yeah, 25, not in every case. Maybe you only work two hours. It would be unreasonable. But instead of going, having the judge and the lawyers go through this whole thing, I mean, EJA is available only if the government's position was not substantially justified, right? It's just uh, not automatic. That's correct. That's correct. It, it's a standard that uh, courts uh, seem to, to find it on a regular basis in these cases, but that is the Has standard. The government, in, it, I don't know how it works, but when someone is seeking benefits from the government, government has prevailed all through the agency, loses in court, does the government sort of just concede that the government's position was not substantially justified? Uh, not, not necessarily, Your Honor. I think the, I think uh, the government lawyers in each case would, would look at uh, the prevailing circuit law would, or, or, or the jurisdiction would, would look at the facts of the case and make a determination. In most of these cases, EJA fees uh, seem to be awarded, and um, and and the, the resolution of those fees doesn't take. Well, a lot shouldn't of time. there be? You say they look at the law of the particular circuit. I would think that a concept like was the government's position substantially justified shouldn't. Be whatever it means in in twelve different appellate courts. My, my, my point, Your Honor, is just that one of the things I think that's keeping is important to keep in mind in these cases is that they, uh, by their nature, tend to be very routine, and so both in terms of awarding EJA fees and in term of in terms of awarding 406B fees, it is not very difficult for for courts to develop practices in these cases that 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 result in a very expedited process. And that, in fact, that is the, that is the way the lodestar method uh, is, is applied. And, and, I, and it seems to me, Your Honors, that the, the alternative that's being proposed would would largely frustrate the purpose that uh, Justice Stevens was identifying of, of the need for some sort of expedited procedures here. Um, they point to four additional factors that aren't lodestar factors that they think courts should take into account. Some of the contingency circuits who have adopted some modified contingency rule. Uh, have added additional factors, including requiring courts to ask whether the claimants had been notified that there were other options other than a 25 percent contingent fee, which under the facts of this case we were told the lawyers does, does, never does do. Does the government have any statistics as to how often an award of attorney's fees by a district judge is appealed to the Court of Appeals? Your Honor, that is, in the context of 406B cases, yes. uh, that, I, there are no, the agency does not specifically keep statistics on that, although I did uh, discussed that with the relevant agency personnel and was informed that, in fact, uh, the agency very rarely seeks an appeal unless the case involves some broader legal principle that the agency determines is important to litigate. How about, how about the attorney? Um, I do not have any figures on that, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Salmons, on another question of statistics, we've had the statistic uh, uh, that uh, uh, only one out of three cases is successful, and I take it you have not challenged that. Uh, that's one of the arguments uh, that there's something that there's really an outrageous uh, practice going on and there's, there's a need to enhance for that contingency. What I want to ask is, are there any, is there any evidence, statistical or otherwise, to explain why the rate is only one win out of three cases? One reason might be uh, that, or, 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 or one description might be uh, that Virtually all lawyers who take these cases, uh, in fact, have the experience of losing two for every one. But another explanation might be that lawyers who can tell the difference between a good case and a bad case win at a very high rate, uh, and that a lot of young lawyers who don't have access to many clients are willing to take long shots, and that when you average those two together, you get the one win out of three cases. Uh, do we do we know uh, which possible description is correct, uh, or whether there's some third description that explains the one in three? Your Honor, I'm not aware of any statistical or, or other information that's directly on point. Although I do think it is important to keep in mind that the standards of review, among other things, um, have a lot to do with the outcome of these cases, and that um, and that the, the the general statistics that the courts. Uh, provide through, uh, for example, 
um, uh, the Federal Judiciary uh, uh, homepage that, that tracks different types of cases in different circuits, for example, um, shows that there has been dramatic increases in the number of uh, Title II disability lawsuits that are, that are, that are filed initially in, dis- in district courts between the period of 1990 uh, to 2000. In fact, that they have tripled. Does and that that's have during the same period of the, time. The way is, because these are all cases that lost at the administrative level, right? That's correct. Is there any, any showing that maybe in, uh, in the prior period there were more cases winning at the administrative level, therefore fewer getting into the court? Um, not that I have seen. In fact, Your Honor, the, the, the numbers that I have seen suggest that um, uh, the, the, the percentage of cases that win before the agency has remained relatively consistent. I, I don't understand the point you were driving at. So what? So they tripled in 10 years? Uh, like, you y- know, and the ice cap melted. And what, no, the, you know, that, Your Honor, I, don't, I certainly don't want to overstate it. I, I don't understand I, what you were driving at. What, what, does, what was the point that you were making? The, the point I was attempting to make, well, Your Honor, is this that there are... Is this the result of those jurisdictions that have allowed the contingency to be no, considered? No, 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 not at all, Your Honor. The, the point I was trying to make is that there aren't any hard statistics that, that show how the different legal rules are having an effect on litigants in this context, but the general statistics... And likewise, I take it there, there are no statistics on how the different compensation approaches are having an effect. That's correct, and, that, and that's, that's the point I was trying to make, Your Honor, that, that the, 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 all that we can tell is that, uh, one, the commissioner has not been flooded with complaints in the circuits that apply the Lodestar, which is the, the dominant method... Uh, and has been for over 10 years. Do you have any? Has been flooded in the other jurisdictions? Uh, uh, no, no. My, my point is that there, there are, there are, there, there's no reason to think that uh, the rules are having that dramatic of an effect on the availability of counsel. Then why don't we leave it alone? Let the judge do it. That is certainly an option that is before this court. Um, the government's position is that if the court is going to address the issue of what standards should be applied that the best way for this court to do it is to uh, specify that the Lodestar method is the best method, and that includes... But that's a a pretty big swing. If you say, if the judge can go up to 25 percent, that's reasonable. Here, what was the percent, the Lodestar percent? The Lodestar yielded what percent of the past two benefits in these cases? Um, uh, Your Honor, I don't have that figure. I can tell you that in terms of hourly rates, for example... I thought it was about, wasn't about half of what the contingency would have been. Even less, I think. Uh, it, it, it varied in, in the cases. I think one way to sort of try and track that is that um, what, what the claimant's lawyers in these cases did was because they recognized they were in a lodestar circuit, they, they, had, they kept the same number of reasonable hours they'd use for their EGIF fees, which the government did not contest, and then they just divided that by the 25% figure and came up with an hourly rate. So the hourly rates they sought in these cases ranged from uh, around $180 an hour to nearly $300 an hour. But those were chopped down by the, the judge. That's correct. They were not supposed to, at least the way this court, the, the court here did it, it took out, following this court's precedent, any override for risk of non-success. That, 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 that's right, Your Honor. So I'm not talking about own... the rates that the lawyers asked for. I'm talking about the rates that they got. In, my concern is this, if you just say, well, judge, look at the agreement, look at the hourly rate, you can get swings from one court saying, as I think was true here, 7.8 percent, to another judge saying, in that very same case, 25 percent. That's why I think you have to have a little more control, a little more uniformity. Your Honor, let, let me make two points very quickly. One is that when Congress enacted this statute, it recognized not only that lawyers were charging an inordinately large percentage in terms of their contingency fees, but there was an inherent problem with contingency fees because in this context, they do not track the value of the reason, a reasonable value of legal services. They, they turn necessarily on factors such as the number of dependents and, and the amount of delay that it takes in order, to, in order to get the benefits, over which time the benefits continue to accrue, which just has no bearing whatsoever on uh, the amount, uh, the value of the legal services you, you, provided. I'm, are you recommending that we say, let the judge do it no matter what? Is that the government's position? I thought the government was coming in with a pretty stiff position that it's the lodestar method, period. That, that is the government's position, Your Honor. We, we think that the lodestar method, let me see if I can and be very clear. 
Your position is that we do not want to subsidize bad suits. Yes, that's, that's exactly it, right. It is not in the interest of anybody, the country or anybody else, to encourage lawyers to bring bad suits and then get paid for it when they, when they win a good suit. But, Your Honor, there's no, there's, there's no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence that it does exist is to the contrary. There are six circuits that have been employing the Lodestar method for, for uh, decades without any evidence that, that, that there's a failure of lawyers to undertake these cases. The lawyers in these cases submitted affidavits that said, you know, we, we practice regularly in federal courts in, in Title II cases, and we've been doing it for years and years. And, and that's in the context of lodestar statutes. Why not make it run the same way the veterans' benefits do? I mean, after all, it's, it's a similar kind of setup. You, you claim benefits at the agency, you lose, you come to court. And there, it's, the agreement is 20 percent, so it's but, — but that seems to be working fine, right, where the judge gives the 20 percent. Your Honor, that would certainly be a, a, an alternative available to Congress. I think the differences in the statutory language would, would prohibit this Court from adopting a rule that would, would look primarily to the fee contracts. Congress knows how to write that kind of statute when it wants to. It did so in 406A2. It has not done so here. Um, another point I'd like to make, Your Honors, is that, um, is that these cases are, as, as both sides seem to agree, are somewhat unique in that they generally require a very low number of hours, they don't inquire, require the same kinds of risk undertaken by the lawyers as other contingency cases do. Um, and well, if that's so, then the judge and all these circuits that follow the contingent method would reduce the award. And, I mean, and, in one way you're going to start with the lodestar and enhance it. The other way you're going to start with the contingent fee, reduce it. I mean, this, I guess the simpler is the contingent fee, reduce it, frankly. I, you don't have to go into the hours. I, I, I disagree, Your Honor, because of, because of court's experience with the lodestar method. I think that's the, the, the most efficient way for, for, for courts to determine the fee. Beyond the record, a number, can you, do you have any statistics on how often um, contingent fees are reduced in the contingency circuits? Uh, I do not, Your Honor. Um, I, I do not. Um, one other thing that sort I think of egregious examples where there was a lot of delay in those circuits just to build up the recovery? Has that turned out to be a problem for the agency anywhere? Uh, Your Honor, the agency has not experienced any particular problem under either of these standards. We do think that the Lodestar method, as this Court announced it in Dague, is the best way to effectuate Congress's intent under the, under the purposes of this statute. I think it's important to keep in mind that Congress has already provided a mechanism to ensure adequate counsel here, and that is the, the uh, payment out of the back benefit awards directly to the lawyer. That's different than in contingency, other contingency contexts. So that Congress did, uh, was concerned with the need to uh, encourage counsel, and it provided a provision to do that. It struck the balance. And, and, and then it required the courts determine the reasonable fee in each case based on a fair value of the legal services provided. And this Court has long held that there is a strong presumption that when Congress says courts determine a reasonable fee, Congress means the lodestar method. If, if the lodestar method... That wasn't even established till Hensley against whatever it was. The, the lodestar got settled around in the circuits in the 1980s. The Social Security claims been going on a long time. Wasn't it standard before that it was contingent? Uh, Your Honor, courts used a variety of standards before, as, it, as they did in, uh, under other fee statutes. The fact that uh, the Lodestar method wasn't fully developed didn't prevent this Court from adopting it under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for example. But um, prior to the adoption of the Lodestar method, it's not the case that courts were routinely deferring to the fee contracts. Thank you, Mr. Salmon. Mr. Schnaufer, you have two minutes remaining. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. I believe that the government's position is a bold new position. The government has not previously advanced, except for in its brief, that all circuits are wrong, that even the lodestar jurisdictions are wrong, that no one can enhance for contingencies can ever be permitted. And so the agency cannot rely on experiencing the circuit with lodestar to say that its method is the preferable method. Um, claimants need attorneys. In these cases, the government conceded that the, that the agency's position, underlying agency position, was not substantially justified. Without attorneys, these claimants most likely would never receive the benefits that they were due. Justice Stevens, you asked about, possibly about the, um, the EJA and the Lodestar. There are many reasons why the EJA, right, the Equal Access Justice Act, is not the Lodestar amount. The EJA has an artificial hourly rate capped below the prevailing market rate. The EJA also often represents a settlement of the parties for the risk of uh, litigating the substantial justification issue. And um, so we cannot rely, just because there is an uh, Equal Access Justice Act award, there is not in, in the case already a lodestar amount. 
Venegas, I think, allows this Court to distinguish easily DAG. DAG should not be applied outside of the fee-shifting context because, as expressed in um, Venegas, a plaintiff should be able to pay his or her own attorney to take into account uh, the risk of loss. Justice O'Connor, I think, was asking whether, uh, whether or not uh, contingency could be taken into account by a district court in determining a fee. believe that if, he, if this, this Court can direct that the Lodestar method be adopted to enhance for contingency, reflecting the necessary contingent nature of a claim, or the Court can use a, um, a contingent fee method, they're again looking at the contingent nature of the fee, regardless of which way uh, the Court goes, or whether the, the Court allows more than one method believe that the uh, contingent nature of Social Security cases um, should be taken into account. The government um, describes uh, dependence. The government objects that attorney fee awards would be arbitrarily uh, different based upon uh, the number of dependents. The government lost that issue in Hopkins versus Cohn in 1968. Um, this court uh, held in Hopkins the number. Thank you, Mr. Chief. Thank you, Mr. Schnaufer. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next, 10 o'clock.